You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. This is Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, here with Dr. Abby Eblen of the Nashville Fertility Center, and Dr. Susan Hudson of Texas Fertility Center, and our lovely special guest today, Dr. Lisa Hansard, also of Texas Fertility Center. Now, Lisa's based in Austin, and Susan, you're based in like San Antonio, New Braunfels area, so you guys don't get to work with each other super often, but um, but get to hang out on all the meetings and fun stuff like that. And so um, Dr. Hansard has been at Texas Fertility Center for better part of 24 years from what you were saying. And and I so the first time I met you, Lisa, we were at um, we were at a, a physician meeting for our lab. And I remember looking over and thinking holy crap, this woman has her shit together. Because you were... First of all, you looked stunning because you had this... It was like a brocade type jacket that was just so smooth and so polished and your hair is perfect. Yeah, and so then, that was my thing. I was going to say, when the first time I saw Lisa, I thought, golly, I love her hair. I wish I had her hair. No, and then... <laughs> so pretty and, then and you, shiny. And, and then y'all. you opened your mouth and you took no prisoners. And I was like, <laughs> all right, let's do this. And yeah, not the first time I've been accused of that. And my motto has always been, fake it till you make it. So apparently I was doing a good job of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so whenever we have guests on, we always want to know what are the random tidbits of your life. And we have found out about things like... Uh, welders. We welders. welders. Mm-hmm. People who raise turkey. Pole vaulting. Pole vaulting is another wait, one. Wait, wait. Who's, who's a pole vaulter? Let's go Tex. back. Can we just... Tex. Tex. And a welder. And a yes. welder too. Yeah. And a welder. Mm-hmm. And did you know that Amy Jones... How many hidden talents? Yeah. Is what? Amy Jones raises turkeys. I am so not surprised by that. <laughs> like a turkey, she looks like a turkey raiser to me. I would have picked her. She sent us a really great picture of it afterwards. I love that. Really, beautiful. Yeah, it was a really okay. Beautiful. I can do that. I can do that. Okay, not, okay. not so, with turkeys. So not tell us turkeys. what your factoid is. I'm anxious to hear what your what your interesting factoid is. That we'll I'm be expecting about. great things. Okay, so. In Austin, where I've been for apparently a million years or 30 or 24, the thing that people say when they meet me, they're like, Oh, you're the one that races supercars. And I'm like, What? Now that is a factoid that I didn't expect. Races supercars. So we had this thing called Circuit of the America here, it's a Formula One track. Okay. Y'all don't even know what that is. Well, it's okay. I'm you know. not really. racing Tell cars. Us. I know what that I won't means. Shame you. So Formula One is mostly a European sport. It's open wheel racing. It's pretty cool. It's at, at one point, maybe still, these people were the highest paid athletes in the athletes. We'll use that word loosely mm-hmm. in the world. So are okay. these the little cars that they race around European towns? These are not, no, girlfriend. These are like tracks. <laughs> okay. Um, so the Formula One race cars are the open wheel race cars. And they're they, the big ones. They're the like, 
Oh, Ferrari, Red Bull. It, it's like, did you see Mercedes Racing in the McLaren. Rain? Did you see what? Racing in the Rain, the movie? I have the book. I didn't see the movie, but I read the book. Does that count? I, y'all, you know, literally a book, seriously. Let's All right. So, this is like, you're in your, let me go ahead and say, I'm in my supercar and I'm on the back stretch. I hit 165 and I'm like, shit. And then I'm like going, why didn't I hit 175 before I had to throw on the brakes? So do you, do you own one of these? Um, I actually looked up what a Formula One car looks like. So I could, and it's no. a pretty bad car. So I don't car, own, I own a say. Formula One car because that's silly. They're not street legal. But um, I do own cars that race on the tracks. Really? So I own a Ferrari, I own a Lamborghini, I've got a Ford GT1. Oh my um, gosh. I, I really, I have a need for speed. A need for speed. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so when do you do this? Or do you do this for fun? Do you do it to race? I mean, do you race your car? Or Are you going to be a uh, professional racer? I'm not a professional racer. Let's get it off. No, it's, but it's fun. It's like everyone needs a release. Some people run. Yeah. Some people like knit, lame. Yeah. Some people do yoga. Pillows. Whatever, whatever, whatever. I feel kind of lame now. Get behind the wheel of a really great car and go as fast as I can, and you know, basically compete against myself. So, how do you do this without getting pulled over and getting a ticket? It's on the track. It's like it's on a race track. It's on a race track. It's not on I thirty (laughs) five. Sometimes it is on I thirty five. By the way, but in general. No, it's not. In general, it's on the racetrack that's designed for that purpose. Do so you anyway, sign yeah. up for like a time? Like if you're going to a shooting range, you go for a time. Do you do you sign up for a time to race your car? Or how do you do that? Mm, mostly you race in groups and teams for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said that like the shooting range. So that's my other hobby. I like weapons. You are from Texas, right? You are totally I, do. I, have a ra- I have a raging judge magnum. If, if anybody really, like, this is a funny story. So, also love the rodeo. We're going to talk about medicine at some point. Can, can we just talk about this? I don't want to talk about medicine. <laughs> it's really fun, right? So, I love, I love, 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 love country and western music. I love the rodeo. I'm from Lubbock, Texas. And so I was at this um, rodeo auction fundraiser thing, and there was a raffle. And so um, I won the raffle, and the prize was this, like, semi-automatic weapon. And I was like, I'm sorry, I already have that one. What else can we do? And they were like, are you kidding me? I'm like, mm not kidding. So I got a, you know, credit, gift certificate, whatever. And I wish I had a picture of it. And um, I could run downstairs and get it. And so I go to the store, the gun store, the store, I go to the gun store and I'm like, what don't I have that would be really cool to have? So I got this thing called a Raging Judge Magnum. It's a 50 caliber handgun with a long nose. It's it's really cool. Man, so, I want to travel um, with you. Yeah. You're a badass. Nobody would bother us if I was traveling with you. Wow. Seriously. No, no one would. And, you know, everyone should have their concealed handgun license. Or maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should talk about something else. We shouldn't talk about <laughs> politics or religion or 
weapons, maybe in a this kind of I'm form. I'm scared of guns. I was never raised with guns, so I just don't know anything about them. Yeah, it I wasn't scares either. Me. I don't know anything about. Makes them. me nervous. I mean, but I'm fine with you having your concealed handgun. You can you can protect me. I can't. Next, <laughs> next time, instead of us meeting in Vegas, you come to Texas and yeah. we go to the gun range. Yeah. I will bring all my guns. We will have we'll yeah. go out in race cars and we will shoot guns. And then All we'll right. come back and we will drink wine. Hey, there you go. Done. Okay, so it's like a I weekend. Told you, I think I just told you all my hobbies. One, two, wow. three. Wow. I'm impressed. I think that's like those places that say and uh, welding actually. <laughs> those places that say guns and ammo, like being sold at the same place, which I always think is like hilarious and true. The only thing that makes guns and ammo, I mean, wait, I'm sorry. Wine and guns, ammo and beer. Some kind of combination of weaponry and alcohol. The only thing that makes it better is if you got there and got home in a really fast car. Wow. I'm I'm very shallow. That's all there is to me. (laughs) All right. Feed me tacos, give me guns and wine. I'm like, thank you. I'm kind of blown away by all this. This is really fascinating. So, on that note. Okay, Karen. Can you get a boring subject of medicine now? I mean, I know that, uh, I mean, vaginas can compete with guns and ammo. I mean, that is, that if is. If you're a dude or a lesbian, <laughs> they can totally compete with guns and All right, alcohol. Fair, fair. fair. Um, okay, Susan, what's our question of the day? So our question of the day, um, it was, let me see. Okay, you're blown away by what Lisa says. So you can't <laughs> like, even think I'm anymore. I'm still thinking about guns and ammo and Susan, how do you not know this is like, You've like been part of my practice for, I keep it on the deal. Apparently so. Wow. I know, Lisa. I know. But it's so fun listening to you talk about it. It is. You I'm passionate what? about something. You can tell because you get really animated when you start talking about it. You're like, I have this big gun and I had everything. This is great. Normally right. for me, so, it's like, we're going to say ask the question of the day. Lisa, okay. we're just going to have you keep talking. Um, so our, our topic of the day was, is to talk, not was, still is, but we're going to see what, what interesting tidbits you're going to put into this because, um, so we're going to talk about egg donation and, and screening egg donors. So when you have somebody who comes in who... You've got however many patients who know who you know need egg donors. Where do those eggs come from? Like, do you just drive around in your fast car and take a girl at gunpoint <laughs> and say you're really cute, <laughs> you look smart? Like you're, That's you're awesome. Tall. No, but I don't do that. Too. But I'm going to start doing that as of tomorrow. That is such a good idea. I'm sure hey, little girl, get some candy, get in my car. <laughs> so, so where do these women? come from? Like, if you're not abducting them, how do they know to come find you? Man, you are, you're really good at this, Carrie. You should, you should host podcasts frequently. <laughs> um, so that's a really good question. And in certain markets, recruiting egg donors is a real challenge. Now, I live in Austin, Texas, where everyone wants to hug the trees and, you know, feed the homeless and make you know, the world a better place. And I 100% agree with that. Um, But it's a very like empathic, altruistic community. And so you get the word out and you say, you know, this is a need. There are people out here who will never be able to have a family 
without the generous services or donation of someone like you. And and women here respond to that. And to be honest with you, most of our new egg donors, I'm going to, I'm going to um, regress here in a second, but most of the donors that come to us come from word of mouth. They either know someone who's had a fertility issue or they know someone who's been an egg donor and they think, you know, that's something that I could do to, you know, help my fellow human being. And I want to look into that a little bit more. Yeah, I think it surprises people when you tell them, because I find that as well, that most women that do this, yeah, I mean, you make money doing it, but I really do find that most women that really do this really feel like they're giving a gift that no one else can give. And so I think that's interesting that, you know, you pointed that out. Yeah, 100%. So um, we, we market for donors in various um, different platforms, but it's, it's as easy as like Facebook, um, Google, Craigslist, believe it or not. We're lucky because we're in a, a very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say liberal, but a very open-minded, um, community Mm -hmm. where we have a, a lot of young women who are, wanting to get back to humanity. Mm-hmm. And so we try to recruit these women with an understanding of what they're doing is extremely serious. It's, it is a like literally like a heartbreaking experience that these recipients are going through. And they're the ones who basically have the, hold the key to these folks happiness. So Besides that, who are the people and why do they do that? Let's go ahead and talk about what does it take to be an egg donor? What are the Because not everybody can be a donor, right? Yeah. Correct. So we've had people call us and they're like 43 years old. They're like, I want to donate my eggs. (laughs) And we're like, you know, we appreciate, we appreciate your willingness to give, but you're not going to be an appropriate candidate for egg donation. So um, couples who need candidates. Couples and individuals who need egg donation, the majority of the time they need an egg donor because the quality or quantity or both of the eggs from the female partner are not viable, not adequate to achieve um, a pregnancy. And so these women have to look outside or these women or couples have to look outside of the female partner to say, you know, we've got a healthy uterus. We've got normal sperm. What we're lacking is a healthy egg. So if we can replace that one component with a younger, you you know, healthy means younger egg, then that is the answer to our fertility conundrum. Mm -hmm. So to be an egg donor, you have to be between the ages of 18. And this is anonymous egg donation. This is someone who's just coming off the street saying, how can I help? You have to be between the ages of 18 and 32. Mm-hmm. You have to have normal ovarian reserve. That's a term that refers to typically quantity of the eggs that you have, which should be high if you're young. And you have to be free of significant um, genetic diseases. You have to have a pretty normal family history. Mm-hmm. You have to be a non-smoker and not use drugs. And you have to have a psychological evaluation that says that, you know, you are going into this for the right reasons. 
there's no um, subclinical pathology. There's no ulterior motive, essentially. Correct. There's not a agent. So I joked to my patients, you know what? None of us could have ever been egg donors because you have to be perfect to be an egg donor. And (laughs) I I for sure would never have qualified. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's a basic screening, um, like a primary screen of 12 or 14 parameters. And if you pass that, then the next thing is you have a one-on-one interview with the um, donor nurse, donor coordinator. And then there is a long application, 14, 15 pages of questions that look at family history, look at your social history, look at your pregnancy history, et cetera, family history. All those things are very important. I think when, you, I, when, when I see so, those, that in and of itself, I think, tells me that somebody's really in it for the uh-huh. right reasons if they fill out that huge, huge... Because it's a 20-page application. It's, long it's, it's long. It's long. So, so Lisa, Lisa, who who develops that really long application? Is, is there any type of governing body that that oversees egg donation? Yes and no. So there's two different organizations that are pro- preliminary or primarily responsible for this. One is the FDA. So you're like, what does this have to do with food or drugs? That's weird. But the <laughs> FDA is the organization in the government that is um, tasked with any kind of donation of human fluid, organs, etc. And the main focus of the FDA is to reduce the trans the risk of transmission of communicable diseases. So there are FDA criteria for infectious disease screening that all of these women have to meet. The second organization is this association, I'm sorry, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which is basically our governing board. That's our professional organization. And they have guidelines. So the difference between regulations is this is a law, you have to follow these rules. And guidelines is we think this is a really good idea and this is the standard of care and this is what you should do. So the ASRM, American Society of Reproductive Medicine, has come up with guidelines that encompass the family history, psychosocial component, you know, drug screening, infection, et cetera. The rest of it, the like touchy-feely part of it that's not just the FDA looking for um, disease transmission. So, go ahead. To interrupt real quick, one of the, the biggest questions that my patients have is, I need an egg donor. How do I know that that her family history isn't terrible you know how do you how do you, how know do you it's figure true? That out how do you know it's true how do you really assess that and how like how does any individual clinic take that on that's a good question so the bottom line is you can't 100% know but these women are coming to this coming into this process generally with a very open um, approach. And they don't really know when we're asking these screening questions, what will eliminate them and what won't. And at least for Texas Fertility Center and our donor pool, we are completely transparent. So, you know, you don't have to have a perfect family history. You know, your uncle may have had schizophrenia. 
your grandmother may have had breast cancer. These things don't eliminate you as a candidate, but they're they're disclosed. So a recipient couple or recipient female coming into this has the opportunity to look at the profile and do her own risk assessment of, is this something that I think is okay? In addition, we screen these women for a very expanded genetic carrier status. So we look at almost 300 unique single gene abnormalities to see if this woman is a a carrier of any of those. If she is, then we require that the male partner be screened to make sure he's not a carrier of the same disorder. Abby, you have a question. So Lisa, tell me how people know that their particular fertility clinic is really following the rules. How Can you describe a little bit about what goes on every year and a half in each of our offices and kind of what the, what the FDA yeah. does to really make sure we're following the rules? Such a question, Abby. Thanks for that. Um, so remember I talked about the FDA and they're the regulators, they're the law enforcers. Um, they audit us randomly. So I'll be, this has happened more than once, out of the country. I'm the director of third-party <laughs> services at Texas Fertility Center. And it always happens. I'm in another country. <laughs> and my nurse will call and she, she'll say, like they're on my call list. And they'll say, um, the FDA is here. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. We don't have, a, I mean, I've been doing this for 16 years. So I'm not worried when the FDA shows up. I know that when they show up, they're going to look at our charts and they're going to say, can, and, and this has actually happened with my um, donor coordinator nurse. They said, is there any way you can like go on the road and show all these other programs how to do this? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, absolutely not. But it's true. Like, you know, we've never been, we've never, ever been um, sanctioned or reprimanded or had like like a demerit mm-hmm. for the way we do things. Because when I set this program up, I absolutely did it knowing the rules and knowing that we were always going to completely follow the rules. From the patient's perspective, Lisa, how how can, you know, we have, we have people listening to us, you know, all over the nation and actually all over the world. How, how does somebody who knows they need an egg donor know that they're, they're looking at a, a clinic that may follow the, the rules and guidelines and, and do everything as wonderfully as, as what we are able to do? They may not. And I think that is what has led to the um, really explosion of frozen egg banks, because it's easy to, easier to um, screen a donor, do everything correctly, stimulate her, retrieve her eggs, put them in the freezer. You don't have to think about it again. You've done it all in real time. It's done. Now, the, the problem there is that you may not have frozen eggs that, um, meet the particular 
parameters that you're looking for. You may say, you know what? I don't want just one child. I want two or three children and I want them to all be genetic siblings. So I'd rather have a donor go, I'd rather have a single donor go through a cycle. I get all of her eggs and I build my whole family from that one cycle. So there's a lot of different options, um, particularly with anonymous donors. There's egg banks, there's age, what we call agency donors, where it's basically a middleman and it's a business for them where they recruit these women to meet certain criteria. And you may be in Los Angeles and your donor may be in Minneapolis and she's being monitored remotely. And that's a lot harder and actually a lot more expensive. The problem is to have your own donor pool it's very expensive and time consuming mm-hmm. to keep an active donor pool going. Um, it all really depends on the, the fertility center that you're working with. This is a passion of mine. It's incredibly important to me. So I convinced my partners, thanks Susan, um, <laughs> to support this. So this, this has been a, um, a viable dynamic program since we started it. And we're probably one of the largest active, fresh donor egg pools in the country. So it doesn't mean it's the right answer for everybody. That's true. It's definitely uh, quite a bit of a, a, a process as you're going through it. So if you have somebody who has been through and they are just frustrated and at their limit because they did a bunch of IVF cycles themselves. They didn't work. They're now at the point of of donor eggs and they're like, I need to do this. I need to do it once and I need to be over this part of our journey. Right. What kind of tips can you give them for looking for an egg donor? So the most important thing is find a clinic that you can trust and ask questions. Um, oftentimes when I have a patient or a couple who have gotten to the point where they need to consider egg donation, it'll say, where do we even start? And I said, you know, talk amongst yourselves and figure out what your, your main priorities are. What are you really, really looking here? And we're lucky enough to have a, a large enough pool where we can say, you know, give me your top two or give, give me your top three. And then I can always go back and look and say, is this a proven donor? Is this someone who's been through before? Did she have success? What was the outcome? Um, a lot of times couples want to maybe move away from a donor who's unproven, meaning a donor who's in the process for the first time and you don't know how she's going to do. And my response to that is everyone had to be a first-time donor yeah. at some time. And sometimes That's donors right. respond better their first time. Yeah, they may be. So these donors who are fabulous, they were all first time donors sometime. Mm -hmm. So we've screened them as well as we can to try to um, choose the ones that are going to give us the highest chance of success with the most desirable um, characteristics. So Lisa, is there a rule about limiting the number of times that a patient donates or a donor donates? Because I think that's one of the concerns for my patients sometimes are you know, are there going to be children all over the United States that have the same, you know, lineage as my child? Yeah. So with egg donation, it's 
it's much less of an issue than with sperm donation. We've all seen those, you know, movies, documentaries, like 300 children from this one person. It's like, that's a little creepy. But um, (laughs) with egg donation, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and in their guidelines states that a donor can go through six cycles for different recipients. And that's just based on actuarial charts of what's the probability in a certain community that you would end up running into, you know, progeny from those eggs um, with, you know, someone who's also progeny from those same eggs. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a little bit um, random because when you really look at the statistics, especially in such a mobile mobile world that we live in. Mm -hmm. These donors come here, they donate and they like, you know, cruise to wherever. So we're a very, very transient population. Mm -hmm. So I think that six cycles is a little bit arbitrary. Um, It's always sad for us when we have to retire Mm -hmm. a donor because she's been through so many cycles and she's done so incredibly well and Mm -hmm. helped so many families. Um, we can always pull these women out of retirement if a couple that they've helped achieve a pregnancy with now desires a subsequent child. They can come out of retirement to um, donate again for the same family. So one thing that's um, a relatively hot topic sometimes when people are talking about donors is anonymity. Mm-hmm. What, what exactly is anonymity and how real is it? Wow. Great question. So um, anonymity is important. And I'm going to go ahead and and talk about this, not just in terms of egg donors, but sperm donors also, Mm -hmm. because it it really applies to both. So sperm banks have been doing this for a long time and they've, they've kind of got it down. I mean, I think that we can learn a lot about egg donation from sperm banks. So They've been subject to the FDA regulations for literally decades. And um, egg donation is a little bit new to that. But what we do, the difference is we treat everybody the way we treat all of our patients. With HIPAA compliance, we're not going to share their private, um, you know, private health information with anyone. The difference is that there are photographs um, to help our recipients choose their donors. So we have photographs from, you know, toddlerhood to late teens or early adulthood. With the way technology is advancing with um, facial recognition software, with social media, we tell these donors we can't guarantee, Mm -hmm. we cannot guarantee that their recipient will not at some point in the future find them. We do say that we will treat them with the same um, regard as we do any of our patients in protecting their personal health information. Did that answer the question? Yeah, I I think that's a very realistic answer because it it is a world that this isn't even the same world it was 10 or 15 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I always tell my donors, because I I do most of the donor and gestational uh, carrier coordination for our clinic, is that, and we do a fair amount as well, both for our local domestic patients and our international patients, is that 
assume at some point that between facial recognition software and the other thing that we found is the... 23andMe and Ancestry.com. 23andMe. Assume that between those two things, there is a reasonable chance that a child could reach out to you one day wanting more information about their genetic heritage. Mm -hmm. And it's not really a, I want you to be my mommy kind of situation um, because typically they're older and they're just more interested in their own right. It's information. They're winning information. There's that curiosity. I mean, my mom just did Ancestry and me and she's like, here's your box. And I'm like, "Mm, not not, not quite ready for that yet. Yeah. So this is, again, when I said we can learn a lot from sperm banks, um, sperm banks have evolved because it used to be completely anonymous, no pictures. You just kind of got a, you've got a catalog. Y'all remember those days? Mm. Every year, remember that? Patients yes. would get a catalog, like you, like this year's catalog. You write off and they... I don't think half our people even know what this year's catalog are. <laughs> oh God, I'm so now, I tell, now I tell patients it is online shopping at its it finest. Is, it's of course it's like it is on Amazon. Shopping. Yeah. So the difference is that sperm banks are ahead of the game and they, um, they have an opt-in ID option. Okay. So what that means is the donor can say... Once the offspring reached reach the age of consent, 18 years of age, that they are willing to have some form of contact, whatever that means, with their genetic offspring. So I think that from an egg donation perspective, we should look at the same thing. Mm-hmm. And if a recipient couple feels like that may be important for their children in the future, that they should choose an egg donor who has opted in for identification. Otherwise, it really is a respecting privacy situation. You know, this is a gift. This is a huge gift. And to be coerced or forced into only doing this if you're willing to disclose your identity that really defeats the purpose of why women are doing this. It's mm-hmm. a good point. I, th- I think we also have to think about the future, though, that these children growing up, you know, we, we've seen generational changes in the last 20, 40 years that, that I think have been surprising to a lot of people, um, that not even people who it's like, oh, I'm not even when I'm thinking of the intended parents looking for information, but those kids later looking for information, just like children who are given for adoption, sometimes Mm -hmm. search for that information that they, they have curiosity about. So looking at egg donation as a whole, if you were going to give one piece of advice to a couple that is seeking egg donation, as we're kind of wrapping all this up, what would it be? The advice would be, um, to the couples who need to consider egg donation, not the ones who've already made the decision, but the ones that are seeking it is to, my advice would be like, really evaluate your priorities. If at the end of the day, what matters the most to you is we have a baby in this house Mm -hmm. to expand our family. Let's look at what the most successful most efficient route is to get there. If on the other hand, the priority is we only want to do this if it's your genetics and your genetics together, then 
then this is not going to work for you. So the, the major, major, major obstacle for couples electing to pursue um, egg donation is the fact that they can't relinquish this dream of a genetic connection mm-hmm. to your offspring. Right? Would y'all look at that? Absolutely. And yeah. I always tell them, I said, you know, I have three kids. They are all genetically linked to me. They could not be more different from each other or with the exception of one of them or to me. So that's not what this is about. This is not about replicating yourself in your own genetics. This is about bringing a baby into the world that's going to expand your family and let you be a steward of their, you know, upbringing. That's really the joy in this. The genetics is a component of it. But if you think that that's all there is to being a parent, you're missing the big picture. That's wonderful. That's an excellent point. I agree 100%. Yay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for being with us again. Thanks for having me. Lisa Hanser from the Texas Fertility Center and Dr. Abby Eblen, Dr. Susan Hudson, and I'm Dr. Carrie Bedient. So to our audience, thanks for listening. Please Please be sure to tune in next week for more. And be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We would love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to schedule an appointment with one of us or to submit specific questions. The more embarrassing, the better. (laughs) We'll see you all real soon. And we love sharing these stories with you. Thanks for having me, y'all. Thanks, Lisa. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lisa. Bye.